Welcome to Power Politics. I'm Jeronimo Cortina, a political science professor at the University of Houston. And I'm Brandon Rottinghouse, a political science professor also at the University of Houston. Thanks for ending your year with us, talking a little bit of politics. It's been a really interesting year, Geronimo, hmm. and uh, there's lots to be thankful for. There's also a lot of things we are looking forward to having in our rearview mirror. So what we did this week is to change things up a little bit. Instead of having a kind of weekly recap, which we normally do, we each selected a handful of things that we thought were like the biggest political moments of the year. So lest you think this is going to be one of those like... Like lousy clip shows, right? Like at the sitcom at the right, end of the right, season, right. you always thought it was going to be like something new and it was like a lousy review. We're not doing that exactly. We're going to talk about oh, the not? big things that happened. Oh, okay, <laughs> we're going to talk about the big things that happened and we're going to use that as a way to talk about why it matters in terms of the big scheme of politics uh, on, uh, yeah, American politics writ large. So um, we each picked a bunch. Um, Geronimo, you picked the first and that yep. was the aftermath of the January 6th investigation investigation and the politics around that. So what's going on there? What do you think uh, that has a kind of lasting legacy wise and in, in, in American politics? Well, I think, you know, even after January 6th, mm -hmm. right, I think that what's very interesting is how Congress, right, had a different take in terms of conducting an investigation. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is going to reshape, you know, future investigations, right? Uh, obviously, given the levels of polarization that we have today, um, you know, members of Congress, especially Democrats, of yeah. course, were not aiming at convincing other Republicans. Yeah. They were talking to the American public. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting because it was a different, very well-produced uh, enterprise. They had a lot of witnesses, media excerpts here, et yeah. cetera, et cetera, even drama, right? Yeah. So now it's- Surprise a, witnesses and uh, stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> like, now it's the, the, the political soap opera yeah. of congressional investigations. That is a good point, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, because you know the Republicans are going to take over, right? And so there's going to be a new Congress and new people in charge, and they're going to do everything they can to investigate every little you know uh, missing pen the from the, <laughs> the, laptop. <laughs> the laptop for sure, but like you know missing pens from you know the White House mess. Um, and so it's a good point, actually. It does make a good model. But let me ask you this. I mean, there are two enduring questions I have. Number one, is will there be um, kind of referrals to the Justice Department in terms of criminal investigations? And that's one question. The other is, are people listening to the content of it? I think you're right about the scope of it. Right. I, mean, I definitely think that this is going to change how investigations are presented. But I also think that um, it didn't really have an effect on people, right? I mean, the polling suggests that after all eight hearings that most people didn't really move uh, their opinions of things. They did suggest that they thought that Donald Trump was more culpable than he right. was. That's hurting him, which we'll talk about in a second. But basically, you know, it didn't necessarily move people's opinion where after several hearings, 58% of Americans believed uh, that Trump bore a lot of responsibility for the affair, but mostly didn't change right. partisan opinion. So what do you think about those two questions? So first of all, I think that there might be. I yeah. mean, Democrats are running against the clock. Yeah. So they have to do it like tomorrow, yeah. right? If they're going to make it referrals, they have to do it now yeah. because comes January 2023, they're out and this thing is going to be, mm -hmm. you know, just put under the rug yeah. and that's it. 
Uh, on your second question, I kind of disagree mm. and agree at the same time. Okay, yeah. It's very, very academic, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, first of all, yes. I mean, uh, polls, you know, polls have different problems, yes. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People might be, you know, just doing social desirability. That's yeah. our wow. academic term of the week. Term of the week. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think that the proof that in my mind that they might have had a significant effect is that we did not see a red you know, tsunami mm-hmm. in the midterm elections. That's a great point. Yeah. And I think that that really materializes the impact that obviously uh, – these hearings may have had in in voters mind yeah so to me maybe you know you're right absolutely yeah but again we saw the evidence right everyone was thinking here comes the red tsunami and suddenly we didn't see it and who lost well people that were very you know uh in that particular uh you know, suave of things in terms of, yeah, they were just peaceful protesters, right? <laughs> right and right. they tended to lose all the elections. No, it's fine. Yeah, with zip ties. Yeah, no, it's all perfectly normal. Um, um, right. We obviously have a pretty particular opinion on this. We've been very clear about it. And I think the American people generally share that, right? The polling suggests that 69% of Americans consider the January 6th attack to be a major problem for democracy. And although it wasn't like the top issue in the election, as you said, it definitely rallied Democrats. And that was right. something for sure that is going to be lasting. Um, it also hurt Trump. And we know, of course, that he's back in the mix again, not that he ever really left, right? Um, but like LL Cool J, right? Uh, never, yeah. you know, don't call it a comeback, but basically it's a kind of a comeback. Right. And the comeback is going to be marred a little bit. So I agree. Yeah, interesting. So now it's your turn. Okay, my turn. Well, yeah. Well, the one, one that I picked was the fallout from the Dobbs decision. And this is, of course, we've been talking about quite a bit is the, basically the end of legal abortion in the country as a federal right. The opinion in the Dobbs decision was pretty clear from the chief, from Justice Sam Alito, that the Roe was originally decided incorrectly. Per the opinion, basically abortion restrictions don't constitute sex-based discrimination anymore. So this preempts women from being able to appeal abortion restrictions under the Equal Protection Clause. Effectively, it's going to be a state-by-state matter, right? Some states are allowing for abortions to continue and some states are not. Texas, of course, is not. SB 8, which came into effect um, a couple of sessions ago, basically bans abortions. And so that's effectively the beginning of this. The penalties for those people who violate that is pretty severe, life in prison and at least $100,000 in fines. So this is definitely a kind of I don't know, kind of a victory lap for Republicans who've been pushing for this for a very long time. So the kind of effect of things in terms of how it's going to shape Texas politics and how it's shaped national politics has been pretty profound. Um, we'll see a lot of fallout from this in the next legislative session. But I actually want to identify a couple of things that I think are really important. Number one, it creates a kind of dramatic importance of state politics. So you've got effectively Mm. the nation being divided into the red states and blue states. And I know you know a lot about this since you have a book with exactly that title. So I want to get your take on that. It's basically like federalism on a monster energy drink. Right. Right. (laughs) Every state now has their own kind of uh, world, right? Your political rights are so different in California than Mm. they are in Mississippi. So that's one big thing. Um, The other is the legacy of the courts. We talked about this a little bit when the decisions came down because it's important. Clarence Thomas has signaled basically he's like to see a bunch of these rights fall. So the right to contraception, the rights to um, you know same-sex marriage, these are all rights that potentially the justice implied would go away if the 
courts were allowed to do it. So that plus the kind of political legacy of the court, the partisan effect of undoing Dobbs, I think we have still yet to really see. And that's going to be something that we're going to deal with, not just you know for 2022, but also through 2024 and probably for a long while. Well, absolutely. And I think that the most important thing to me is what you just said. And I think you're absolutely right. First of all is these feralism in steroids, right? And the whole idea of having a feral system is that states, one way or the other, are going to contribute to the generation of, you know, the public good. And for that, you need the cooperation between states. And what we're seeing now is that this federalism is not working, right, as the framers intended, right? Have some state rights on the one hand and then pursue the well-being of the nation. And here, I think that the issue of state rights is taken a little bit farther. And we cannot operate as an efficient and effective federal system if we don't have that cooperation and especially, right, uh, I guess, uh, uh, an even uh, policy framework which, you know, all citizens would be able to understand what would happen. That's yeah. that's a very important point that I just want to highlight that's once good. again. And the other point that you say is this issue about the courts, right? Uh, it seems that we're now seeing uh, a very conservative court Conservatives saying, well, this is now fair game, right? Yeah. So the issue and the debate that we had for many years, if judges should be, you know, legislating from the bench, mm. now that discussion seems to be over. <laughs> right. right? It's okay now. It's, it's, it's fine now, right? So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how long they're going to be, right? Yeah. But we see also other members of the court, especially uh, Chief Justice Roberts, yeah. I think extremely worried extremely worried about the position of the Supreme Court in terms of having a saying in very delicate policy matters that should leave at hands of Congress. And that's it. It's like, it's your problem. I'm not going to deal with it. Do whatever you want, but I'm not going to mess with these things. And I think that now, you know, Justice Thomas is trying to push that envelope a little bit farther and farther away that could have disastrous consequences yeah. when the separation of powers is broken. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, this is a policy choice in addition to the politics of it that has tremendous problematic implications to some groups in Texas, right? Obviously, women, generally speaking, are going to have health affected by this. But African-American women in particular are very much affected by the loss of Roe. And they're more likely to die during childbirth or more likely to have problems during pregnancies. They're less likely to have health care. So just as a health care issue, too, it's a big factor. And so, again, that's going to be something that they'll fight about. But my honest guess is just thinking and looking at kind of what's happening politically, that we're probably less likely to see the Democrats pushing for big changes, they're really playing small ball, (laughs) (laughs) trying to get as little, as much as they can, but that's very little. So that's going to be interesting to watch in the next legislative session, which we'll do after the break. But before we get there, you had another big issue, and that was the narrative about the Latino community switching to the GOP in mass. It didn't seem to happen. (laughs) Why? Because, you know, that was based on data that yeah. did not give the picture, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, the 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 ceiling of Latinos voting for uh, a Republican candidate, right? That was in the George W. Bush era, yeah. where, you know, numbers were around 
forty-five percent more or less. Yeah, but George but the high, got, right? Yeah. High, yeah. That's the ceiling so yeah. far. Yeah, and I think that it was because he was a different candidate. Yeah, he was uh, campaigning on this compassionate conservatism. He understood Latino culture, right? He was the governor of Texas. Uh, he knew, right? He knew how to talk to the Latino voter. Yeah. So we saw, especially in South Texas uh, and across the nation, yeah. uh, but, you know, Texas was very interesting because it was, you know, the Latino vote are Latinos for Trump or yeah. Latinos for GOP or whatnot right. on steroids again. Yeah. And I think that that was very indicative of the narrative and how people you know, started to make assumptions based on one single observation. Yeah, that's a good point. So remember that we have uh, Philemon Bella, right, that uh, uh, decided to step down in Congress, special election, uh, GOP won uh, Mm. that uh, particular race uh, that was... Uh, the race about the thirty yeah the thirty mm-hmm. four district mm-hmm. uh, Mayra Flores won mm-hmm. right so everyone says like oh yeah. Latinos yeah. are voting the wave Republican. is coming right yeah it's <laughs> it's it's a matter of fact but in reality that did not happen so Republicans tried to flip four seats yeah. in South Texas and they flip one that I don't really count yeah. <laughs> because that was a redistricting. Yeah byproduct right. in which uh, Trump got an advantage, right, of yeah. around two percentage points. So that was easy uh, for Republicans to, you know, quote unquote, siege. Mm. But in the other seats, right, uh, Vicente Gonzalez won, yeah. uh, Cuellar won, uh, Veronica Escobar won. Yeah. If you look at uh, Senate District 27 with yeah. La Mantilla, she won. Close, but, uh, yeah, but close, she won. Close, but, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, that's mm-hmm. it, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that when you look at those numbers, when you look, for example, at some of the counties like Hidalgo in 2141 for GOP, in this one 40.7, yeah. 4345 in Cameron, 38 to 37 in Webb County, in Stark County went from 47% for president, yeah. right, to 41%. Will you see also Zapata uh, a little bit up from 52.7 yeah. to 53.3. Yeah. So in reality, is like, well, no web raid uh, yeah. uh, and no significant changes in terms of a political realignment. And with that, obviously, Latinos mm. tend to vote also Republican and Democrat yeah. as well. But yeah. it's more heterogeneous than what they were thinking. Yeah. Stability, right? And then that's what the Democrats wanted. And they're willing to take that to three to two split or two to one split, right? They're not going to win all the votes, right? It's not going to be like African-Americans where they're lockstep for Democrats. They're going to have to fight for the vote. Oh, yeah. And and they sort of did. I mean, if you look at Arizona, you look at Nevada, they worked hard to get that vote. Not so much Texas. (laughs) Not Florida. And actually, that's a good example because the Florida and Texas examples where you did see Republicans doing really well in those communities, they invest a lot of money in it. And so I can easily see that Democrats can understand the pattern. If you spend money and time, you're going to get the vote. And that's what they're doing. So looking at places like Arizona, you Mm. saw that, you know, Mark Kelly got uh, basically Biden vote or more Uh, in Philly. Fetterman got more than Biden. He outperformed some of those precincts. So it's definitely the case that Democrats know that if they're investing, they're going to get stability. So at the end of the day, that's a good enough win (laughs) (laughs) because they can win enough, especially with 
yes, you guessed it, Donald Trump around uh, uh-huh. to be able to do that. Um, so that was one of my other big picks, Donald really? Trump in 2024. <laughs> I want to ask you because um, obviously Trump is a major figure. It's impossible to talk about American politics today and not talk about Donald Trump, but his attempt to become the second commander in chief ever elected to two non-consecutive terms could end up pretty bad because the polling suggests that he's basically not doing that well. In fact, polling we looked at this morning suggested that he's actually pretty far behind Ron DeSantis and he would lose a head to head against Joe Biden. So Joe Biden's happy. He can run the same playbook basically and do pretty well. Um, Ron DeSantis is pretty happy because he can see (laughs) Trump imploding in a way. So um, I wonder what you think about that and the shape of how 2020 24 is going to play up with Trump in the mix. Well, it's going to be very interesting because in addition to that, we have now uh, the change of the guard Mm. in the Republican Party, right? Uh, We have now a potential significant contest in terms of who's going to be the new leadership at the GOP at the national level. And that's going to shape up who's going to be, you know, or or who's going to be the candidate of the Republican Party. For Trump is a significant battle, right? And every time he does something he creates a new problem for <laughs> himself. And this is in addition of the civil suits right. and the Mar-a-Lago we investigation. We talked about this last week, yeah. Right. Like mounting investigations exactly. and criminal so charges. So it's and... one after another, right? I'm sure that he's going to get a new parking ticket uh, very soon in New York <laughs> City. We speak, uh, well, right? no, in Florida. <laughs> and <laughs> that's, you know, create a new avalanche of scandals. Right. But again, as we said before, Donald Trump is like the phoenix, right? Yeah. He rises from the ashes and, and stronger and stronger and stronger. Right. So I don't discount him yeah. 100%, yeah. but on the other hand, and don't count him 100%. Right, right. No, I agree. Um, I think you're right. I mean, it's obvious that his sort of sell-by dates passed, right? He's like right. the milk that you don't quite sure you want to drink, right? But right. you can. <laughs> you might get a little sick, but right. you got to have your morning cornflakes. But I think you're right. And I also think that there are people who are, yeah, stepping into that role. So, for instance, you know, Glenn Youngkin, the governor mm. of, uh, of Virginia, is a good example. Tim Scott, right, from South Carolina. That's interesting. So, like, there are other people. And the polling looks pretty bad for Donald Trump. Like I said, the head-to-head matchups look really bad. He's losing independence 58% to 32%. To DeSantis, so that's not the win set yeah. that you want. But here's one plus for him, and that is that he controls, like with an iron grip, the apparatus of state. Republican parties. And that's how you get elected president, right? Yeah, you go state true. by state. We don't elect people nas- nationally right. in the same way, right? You have to win state by state to get the nomination. And if well, he gets that, the nomination, that's your next it's a whole book, thing. my friend. Yeah. There you go on presidential <laughs> right. politics. I didn't think of this, but this is definitely the case. I'm co author um, now. Yeah, exactly. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> You're officially welcome as a co author. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But obviously, that's pretty significant. But obviously, a lot of this is the internal battle between the Republican Party. And that was one of your big picks for the week, too. Or yeah, for it's, the year, too. Uh, absolutely. It's the, I guess is the internal battles within the GOP, but also within the Democratic Party. Yeah. So I think that, first of all, when you know we're looking at this big juncture in terms of a internal political realignment. Mm. On the one hand, at the GOP, we see you know Lindsey Chain is trying to you know say like, hey, we're conservatives. We're not going to find the culture wars, anything like that. 
where for fiscal conservatism, you know, traditional social issues, cultural, just like yeah. we're not going to mess with those things, like yeah. whatever, you, you know, laissez-faire, let people do whatever they want, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's, it's very interesting, mm. right? Because I think that the push and pull that we're going to see next in the next couple of years towards the 2024 election has to do with how these political parties are able to resolve their internal issues. Yeah. It's a big family, yeah. right? Big tent. <laughs> a big tent. You put them under the tent. Everyone is fighting. Everyone is bickering. Everyone wants to get a slice of the pie. Right. So there has to come out someone that says, "This is your slice. This is your slice. Suck it up. Yeah. This is for the you know for the good of the party." Yeah. And within the Democratic Party, I think it's even more interesting mm. because that is, I guess, paired with this big demographic shift yeah. that we are observing, especially in big states like Texas, California, Florida, and obviously across the nation, right? You have millennials, Gen Sears, mm. now Gen Alphas <laughs> or uh, Alphas <laughs> or something. Uh, right. I don't know what's what's their new motto, whatever, you know, name. Depending on what the next war is, right? That'll be... <laughs> oh, okay, perfect. Okay. We don't fight world wars anymore. Uh, so the interesting thing here is that, you know, you have a fight between progressives yeah. and more traditional Democrats. Yeah. We have seen that that, in my mind, the change of the guard, especially Nancy Pelosi and all the leadership in Congress that you said is yeah. uh, uh, in conjunction on average 100 years old. You said that. Uh, I didn't say I think it. collectively, yeah, it's like like they're 150 years old. It's like, right. Yeah. It's so, a long. <laughs> so it's interesting, right? Because that has been at least more orderly and say, okay, we get it. Right. If we want to survive, fine. Yeah. Now you can have the car keys. Just don't crash the car. Yeah. Uh, be careful, uh, drive safe. Yeah, and the Democrats um, are different than Republicans in that the Republicans like to have those term limits, right? So a lot of the members, like we know the last couple of years, have moved up and on because, yeah, they are term limited out. So that's why now you've got this mega fight for Speaker to the date, even though Republicans took the House, they're mm -hmm. still in the position where they don't necessarily have an odds-on Speaker. I mean, likely McCarthy will get it, but this internal kind of squabbling is going to create a lot of tension. So will there be a unity speaker, <laughs> Democrats joining with Republicans to decide who the speaker oh, is? Boy, that would be... It could happen. Yeah, um, I it think could it could happen. Um, it probably won't. Just historically, it's never been the case, um, especially in today's polarized politics. Like getting Republicans to vote for a kind of moderate is going to be a challenge. And all the Democrats together, uh, if they keep their unity, could do it. That's, again, the problem you face, right, that you note. And that is that it's really hard to get the parties to be able to agree on. House what of Cards, my friend. House of Cards. <laughs> right. Hopefully nobody gets pushed into the, you know, metro tracks. But, right. you know, it's uh, going to be a long Congress. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll keep yeah. tabs on all of that. So you mentioned also within, you know, speaking of political mm. parties, you know, the DNC reshaping yes. uh, their calendar. So what's up with that? This is really interesting. So actually, this kind of flew under the radar a little bit. And we didn't even talk about it because we had so much going on that week. But the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party, has basically reshuffled how the opening sequence of states will go in terms of the presidential nomination fight. So we are traditionally, you know, used to seeing Iowa going first in the caucuses. Super and fun. then New Hampshire, yeah, yeah because people oh, love spending, you know, their, their winters <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in a 
cornfield in Iowa, but now they're not going to have to because the DNC has reshaped this. Basically, now South Carolina is going to be the first state that's going to go, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada a week later, then Georgia, then Michigan. So this is really interesting because South Carolina really has been the kind of pivot point for a lot of winners in the Democratic Party. Mm. Barack Obama was basically able to break through at that point. Joe Biden owes his presidency, owes the nomination to South Carolina and Jim Clyburn. So it's really interesting to see this reshaping. And you have to think a couple things are going to happen here. It definitely elevates a more diverse kind of party, and that's going to shape the way and who gets nominated. It's also going to promote a lot of working class constituencies that power Joe Biden's win. So not to mention the fact that African-Americans make up a significant portion right. of the vote in South Carolina, as they do for the Democratic Party more generally. So this is really a, a major change in terms of who's likely to get nominated. I don't know what's going to happen in 2024 for the Democrats. Biden said he's going to run again or hinted he's going to run again. I'm not sure he will. But even if he doesn't, who runs will be significantly shaped by this. So what's your take on on, on the sort of reshuffling of the cards here for the DNC's uh, um, sequence of, of primaries? So I think it's once again in my mind, and, and perhaps yeah. I'm being too naive uh, no. this time, but uh, you know me. Uh, it's a <laughs> optimistic. way uh, optimistic. It's a way I think of the of the Democratic Party saying, okay, you know, the writing on the wall is that all the electorate has changed, that we have to reflect that within the Democratic Party if we want to be competitive. Yeah. And that's a way of signaling to voters is like we care about, you know, uh, uh, the base of the Democratic Party. Yeah. So I think it, that's very interesting. Also allows, you know, other candidates that may not have mm. a lot of money to be more competitive yeah. and have a more interesting race rather than, okay, he won or she won 11,000 primaries already and then candidates start yeah. to, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I think it's interesting seeing how those campaigns are going to be reshaped mm. and how the strategy of the campaign is going to change. And I think that's yeah, it will. fascinating from a political standpoint. It will, yeah. No? I mean, it, it'll definitely change because it's harder for a grassroots candidate to win. You can go to Iowa and organize your caucus like Howard Dean, but that's going to be much harder now. So people like Chris Nunu, who's the governor of New Hampshire, are not happy about it. <laughs> they said, why would we allow for South Carolina, which is basically run by party bosses, to go first? But maybe it's sour grapes or maybe it's a real change. So so we'll see, right? We'll but see. it reshapes 2024. Lots of big news, right? Lots of big things that happen this year. Yeah, but uh, I think that for this year, that's it, Brandon. This is it. That's a wrap. And as you say, actually, this is our last podcast of the season. Now, we want to thank our producer, Troy Schultz, for making us sound so good and helping us to get all this put together. Um, we'll be back after the holidays. Uh, everybody hopefully has a good, happy holiday and a Absolutely. nice break. We are excited, actually, Geronimo, yeah. to announce some big news for Party Politics, and that is we are expanding our format. We are going to have not only our podcast as normal, but we're going to have a digital footprint. We'll be available on YouTube and hmm. we'll be on TV. <laughs> 8 o'clock on January 6th will be our first show, Houston Public Media TV 8. So please tune in. Continue to listen. Send us tweets. Send us emails yeah. at partypoliticspod at houstonpublicmedia.org. We'd love to hear from you. Happy holidays. I'm Jeronimo Cortina. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next year. 